overwhelmed by that, those events and, and seeing the second tower fall and, and just what is going on. And, and everyone had all these questions. I can remember that day. We were at SBU at the time and in college, and that day just no one knew what to say or what to do. And there was a moment of silence just across the campus. And, um, but for the next five weeks, we're going to be looking at one of the most monumental events in history. When Jesus was born, he changed the calendar. I mean, right? We went to B.C. to A.D. Yeah, thank you, Jesus. When he died and when he rose again, he changed man's relationship with God for eternity. And so for the next several weeks, we're going to spend five weeks looking at this final week, this Passion Week of Christ, just examining some of the things that have happened, some of the things that led up to this and getting an understanding. And I hope, I've been praying that we just get a better picture of this week leading up to Jesus' crucifixion and His resurrection. So we're going to begin in chapter 19 in verse 28, if you have your scripture with you. And the word of the Lord says, when he had said these things, stop. We need to stop right there. Okay, we said what, right? That should be the question. When you're reading your Bible any sort of time and you have these, these comments, if you're jumping into a passage of Scripture, you have these comments, immediately you should ask the question, okay, when he said these things, obviously talking about Jesus, but what did he say? What is the gospel of Luke? What is the writer of Luke pointing back to to give us understanding to this particular event? Now, we believe that Luke was led by the Spirit to write everything that he wrote in what we call the Gospel of Luke. We can know, because Luke tells us in the introduction of his Gospel, that he acquired all this information from eyewitness accounts and compiled this narrative so that we could have the story, the ministry, the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. But in this moment, the Holy Spirit has placed it upon Luke's heart to say, to point us back to an event, to, to draw us back to something Jesus had said that leads up to us understanding this triumphal entry. What Luke has done here is he is pointing back to an event that happened in the city of Jericho. In the city of Jericho in chapter 19, Jesus encounters Zacchaeus. And we all know the song, right? We little man and a wee little man was... Get your savior, savior sway on, all right? Yeah. All right, so Jesus encounters Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus climbed up a sycamore tree to see what he could. Man, all right. <laughs> we, so Jesus stops. He says, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm coming to your house. And he spends his time with Zacchaeus, who was a tax collector. He was a corrupt tax collector who only had other tax collector friends. And these weren't individuals that the Jewish elite nor Jewish people looked highly upon. And so they ridiculed Jesus. Look, he eats with tax collectors and sinners. And as Jesus is gathered at Zacchaeus' house, he tells a parable. This is what Luke is pointing back to. He's pointing back to this parable, this story that Jesus speaks of in, in Luke chapter 19. You can read it later this afternoon if you like. It begins in verse 11. It runs through verse 27. The parable speaks of stewards. It speaks of a master coming and giving his servant uh, a certain amount of uh, possessions, a certain amount of things, and that they have to take care of that. Some of them amplified that. Some of them, one of them hid it because he was scared that his master would ridicule him or rebuke him. So he wanted to make sure he brought back to the master everything that he was given. But the master ends up rebuking that one servant who hid this talent that he was given. And he didn't use it. He didn't expand it. And so he takes it away. 
In this parable, what Jesus is doing is he's talking about the, Jesus, the Jewish people. How God has given you a talent. He has given you a gift. He's speaking about how God has called you out to Genesis 12 when God called Abraham out that he would be his God and, and he, would, he would be the father of nations and that God would be with him and he would bless those who bless him and curse those who curse him. He speaks of that. That God called you out of that, not by anything you've done, but who God was. He speaks of the covenant that God made with the Israelite people, going back to Exodus 19 and 20, how God gave you the law and God, God gave you everything you needed to be his people. And yet you've blown it. That's the parable. It is pointing to how the Jewish people, God has given them everything they needed. He's given them every word they needed to point to the Savior, to point to the Messiah, to point to who Jesus Christ is, and they have blown it. They've hidden it. They haven't done anything with it. This sets up the triumphal entry. Luke is pointing back to these events as, as Jesus is, is getting ready to enter into Jerusalem on this last week of Passover an event that would go all week long. It would end on, on the Friday. And so it would start on the Sunday, the first day of the week. And so we can gather as Jesus is heading into the beginning of the Passover feast, the Passover celebration. We're on Sunday. Jesus is, is heading in and Luke says, when he had said these things, now we can also gather from other gospels that this event in Jericho was not the last event that led to the triumphal entry. I love how we have all the Gospels and we can begin to piece together this beautiful image, this beautiful picture of Jesus Christ and His life. And what we're told in the Gospel of John, which we looked at last week, is the very last event leading up to the triumphal entry is Jesus going to Bethany and He raises Lazarus from the dead. Now when He does that, the Jewish people have two responses. They are either overwhelmed and enamored with Jesus Christ, or they become completely irritated with him. It seems weird, but this sets up the event. Luke points back to this parable because this is what is going to how this event is going to end. So when he said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And as he approached Bethpage and Bethany, at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples ahead and said, Go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a young donkey tied there, you may read young colt, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone asks you, where, why are you untying it? Say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent left and found it just as they had just as he had told them. And as they were untying the young donkey, its owner said to them, why are you untying the donkey? And they said, the Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their clothes on the donkey, they helped Jesus get on it. You notice what Jesus does here? He, he tells two of his disciples, look, I want you to go on ahead and find this donkey. Now, Jesus just didn't tire? Can he not walk himself? Can you not, I mean, it was about two miles, a little less than two miles from Bethany to Jerusalem. And so two miles wouldn't be something that would be hard for him to do. We know from later on in Scripture, later in the week, 
that he and his disciples every single day are walking from Bethany to Jerusalem and back to Bethany. They're most likely staying with Mary and Martha and Lazarus at their house until that is Thursday night, which would be the last night where they rent the upper room. And so back and forth they walk. Why in this particular moment is Jesus saying, I need you to get this donkey? And he not only says, okay, this is where you're going to go. This is the direction you're going to go. This is what you're going to find. This is what's going to happen when you're there. And this is what you're going to say. And it happens exactly the way Jesus tells them. But why? Why is he so fascinated with riding in on a donkey? Well, the Bible tells us this is fulfillment of prophecy. Zechariah 9, 9 says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus does this because he is fulfilling scripture. As a Jewish individual, you would be able to see this image. And, we, and I believe the crowd had some idea, some understanding of what was happening here, but not the full scope of it all. But he does this to fulfill the word of God. He came to make it real to people what was happening. But notice he gives special instructions and specific instructions. He tells them, this is what you look for. This is the condition of the animal. This is how you handle the situation. This is where you to bring it. And this is what we find in the word of God. Jesus is the word, the living word. And when we open the word of God, we find these exact instructions to be given in our life. God tells us where we need to go. He tells us how we need to live. He tells us what we can expect when we live our life a certain way according to his word. And he tells us where we'll end up being when we do so. With disciples, I can't imagine. Can you imagine? It unfolds exactly how Jesus says. I mean, they shouldn't be baffled, but something tells me they probably were. They say exactly what Jesus tells them to say. And, and whoever owned the donkey or whoever noticed them doesn't say another word to them. And so they take it back to Jesus and they start throwing their coats on the donkey. And pick up in verse 36, as he was going along, they were spreading their clothes on the road. So not only are they throwing their coats and on the donkey for Jesus to ride on, they begin throwing their coats. This isn't like, <laughs> Jesus did not tell them to go streaking. Okay, that's not what it's saying here. What this is, is a sign of respect. It's a sign of saying that we understand who you are. Now, I grew up in church, and I remember Sunday school. Y'all remember those beautiful pictures that used to come with the Sunday school material books? Those wonderful drawings where Jesus was never smiling. He was just kind of serious Jesus. I remember the story in, in Sunday school, and this event happened in Jerusalem in the picture. But the reality of Scripture is this event happens on the way to Jerusalem. This is a, almost a two-mile parade of people putting their coats on the ground as Jesus is coming closer to Bethlehem. Matthew tells us that people are waving palm branches in the air singing, Hosanna, Hosanna. That there's no real biblical significance of the palm branches except that it is showing honor and respect to who Jesus is. That's why we call the Sunday before Easter Palm Sundays in recognition of this event. They're showing their gratitude. They're showing their, their allegiance. They're showing their worship to Jesus Christ. And we read in verse 37, the whole crowd of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice. There's a lot of excitement in this crowd. We don't know the amount of people that are there, but not just the disciples. There's probably people who were in Bethany and, and saw Lazarus come back from the dead. We know the Pharisees are in, are in this crowd as well. They're going to pipe up here in a second. 
But this is going to be a loud crowd. It's going to be a very slow procession. Can you imagine two miles and you're just, people are just laying things down for two miles and they're waving palm branches. This is going to take a while. But one thing we can understand is Jesus knew exactly why he's going to Jerusalem on this day. He knew exactly how this week is going to end. And even though his disciples, John reveals his disciples who were scared about going back into this area, we see Jesus, he is not scared of anything. He is marching in. He is letting it be known, I am coming. I am on my way. He's not trying to hide himself. He's not trying to sneak in. He is showing up with this fanfare of crowds, singing to him and joyfully praising him. And even though this event is going to lead to his ultimate death, the writer of Hebrews says that as he heads into Jerusalem and as he goes about this last week, that it was the joy that lay before him that he did this. Up to this point in Scripture, when people began to recognize Jesus as the Son of God or, or the Messiah, a lot of times Jesus tells them not to tell anyone. In part, that was so Jesus' ministry wouldn't be hindered. A lot of times when people did the exact opposite of what Jesus said to do, Jesus had to move on to another place or go out into a desolate area because he couldn't do the ministry he was wanting to do in that moment. But here in this moment, as he's heading into Jerusalem, the crowds are praising his name and shouting joyfully and worshiping. Jesus never tells them to be quiet. He accepts it. Matter of fact, in verse 39, when the Pharisees come to Jesus and say, Teacher, rebuke your disciples, Jesus tells them, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. He's welcoming the worship. One thing I want us to see about Jesus and understand in this triumphal entry is that it was Jesus who decided. Jesus was the one that told his disciples to go get that donkey. Jesus was the one that told the disciples we're now going to Jerusalem. Jesus was the one that decided that he would be worshipped and praised and this massive noise would be heard as he would come in. Jesus decided all that. No one forced this upon him. Matter of fact, the Bible tells us that Jesus spoke in John 10, 18, that no one takes it, and he spoke of his life, from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down, and I have the right to take it up again. I have received this command from my Father. Jesus decided, and what I want us to understand is that the cross was Jesus' choice. Jesus chose the cross for you and for me. He chose it. It wasn't forced upon him. He willfully chose to be obedient to God. We also see that Jesus was deliberate. Deliberate speaks of, of, of being careful and, and methodical. Jesus was deliberate in this moment as he is setting up the crucifixion, that he is going to die for people in their sins. Whether this crowd fully understood what was going to happen, I doubt they did. They were probably praising him and hoping that Jesus would come in with his fanfare. He would kick Rome out of Jerusalem. He would arrive in the temple and he would set up God's kingdom on earth like King David and King Solomon. But Jesus wasn't about that. He was delivered about coming and showing the love of the Father. And so he welcomed the worship because this is a worship celebrating that God's love was about to be fully revealed. One commentator writes that God has proved once and for all that he is indeed the God of love by the actions of Jesus Christ. No one forced him. No one made him do it. 
And Jesus was delivered. He was delivered about saving sinners. Matthew 9, 13, it says, For I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. He was delivered about showing God's love. John 3, 16 through 17, For God so loved the world in this way, He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Jesus was deliberate about being an example. 1 Peter 2.21 tells us, For you were called to this, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in His footsteps. He not only showed us the love of the Father, but He showed us how we should be living in response to God's love. That we be determined as Jesus was. The Bible tells us in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 22, and 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, that from the beginning of time before sin could enter into the world, Jesus was there. Before we were even born, Jesus was there, and He was determined to come to this moment, to come to this place where He was going to die for the sins of the world so that we could be brought back into harmony or to peace with God, which if you notice there in verse 38, this is exactly what they're singing about. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. That phrase, blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, is taken from Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is a, is a psalm that is meant to celebrate the Passover. It's to celebrate this very festival that Jesus is coming into on this, don on this donkey into Jerusalem. The psalm in Psalm 118 portrays a king coming into the temple and to offer sacrifices to God for rescuing his people. So we see the crowds kind of have an idea of what's happening. And this is why the Pharisees rebuke it because they understand what the crowd is implying. That Jesus, this man from Nazareth, whom they detested, was going to come into the temple and redeem God's people. But to the Pharisees, this wasn't the Messiah. This wasn't the Savior. This was a lunatic. This was someone possessed by the devil. But Jesus, he kept writing in. And what he ultimately comes to show during this week is that he did not come up to set up an earthly kingdom, but he came to set up a messianic kingdom, an eternal kingdom, a universal kingdom, a spiritual kingdom, which gives us a, a kind of an understanding as the week begins, the crowd is shouting, blessed to be God, blessed, holy God, Hosanna in the highest, and then a matter of days, kill him. Because all that emotion, all that excitement about what they wanted Jesus to be for them began to fade away crowd looked at Jesus and for some reason by the time this week is over he didn't live up to their expectations of what he should be this is the man who fed thousands walked on water calmed the storm raised the dead healed the sick the blind cast out demons and yet he still did not meet the people's expectations but can't we do that too God this isn't what I really wanted God this isn't what, how I saw this going this wasn't a part of my plan. And so our expectations that we place on God can leave us a lot like this crowd. We can become enamored with Him and worship Him and do our Savior sway one day, but then the next day we're like, I thought you were good. I thought you were loving. 
Jesus comes in and these Pharisees say, rebuke these people. Rebuke your followers. And Jesus tells them something really strange. You know, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. It's a phrase used in Scripture in Bible study. We kind of hit on this a little bit. In Genesis chapter 4, God comes to Cain and he asks him, where's his brother? And Cain's like, I don't know. Am I supposed to be his babysitter? And God says, look, his blood's crying out from the ground. In Habakkuk, we read that Babylon's sins cried out from the stones. In the book of Isaiah, we read of the money crying out because of the bad treatment of the poor. Throughout Scripture, there are these inanimate objects that give evidence to God against an offender. These stones here in Luke, what Jesus is saying is these stones are witnesses to the glory of God. And if these people did not worship in this moment, even if they didn't fully understand it, if they did not worship in this moment, then the stones themselves would give glory to God and to testify the magnificence of this situation. When Jesus says they're crying out, He's also implying that the stones themselves are going to witness and testify to the lack of worship that these Jewish leaders had towards the one true God. It lets us know that there is nothing in our life that is hidden from God. His creation testifies for us and against us. God is aware of everything we're going on in our life. And as this fanfare is going on and people are excited, I want us just to Hone in on one verse there, verse 41. As he approached and saw the city, he wept for it. As he approached and saw the city, he wept for it. That word wept means a deep agony. It is a gut-wrenching, visible display of sorrow. Just picture this. Here's Jesus being lifted up, being proclaimed and made visible a fulfillment of the prophecy of God. Here are these crowds shouting out His glory, calling for peace on earth. They're echoing the angel's proclamation when Jesus was born, peace on earth to whom God favors. And the crowd here once again is saying peace on earth. That means harmony with God, being reconciled to God. And all this fanfare, all this is going on. And Jesus in the midst of that is not over, overwhelmed by it. He's not over, over uh, 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 amused by it. He looks to the city, the city of Jerusalem, to the Jewish people, look that this is the place where God's presence resides. This is where he dwells. This is where the blessing of God is. This is where God's people come to gather and worship. And Jesus looks to the city that the Jewish people saw the presence of God and the worship of God. And instead of coming into this fanfare of celebration, the Son of God weeps in agony so much to the point that his tears are running down his face. See, Jesus understood that he was going not to his funeral, but to the funeral of death, despair, conflict, and sin. And I wonder, as the Son of God, as he approached Jerusalem, of all the things that he had known from eternity began flooding his mind. I wonder if he thought back to the garden when the first sin came in and it separated man from God. I wonder if he thought of when Abraham was called up and and God set him apart and the nation of Israel apart. I wonder if he thought back to the moments when Joshua went into the promised land saying, well, we're going to be strong and courageous. We're going to hang on to the word of God. And then the, the time when David comes running into Jerusalem because the ark has returned 
And he's throwing his clothes off as these people are putting their clothes down on the ground. I wonder if Jesus is thinking of that celebrative heart, that heart of God and that individual. Or the dedication of the temple when Solomon built it and they were calling everyone to humble themselves and seek God and, and to be focused on who he is and understand that he is in their midst and in their presence. And yet in all of this, as Jesus looks to Jerusalem, imagine his mind was flooding with all these things, but the reality that he understood, look there in verse 42. If you knew this day that would bring, if you knew this day what would bring peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. He's telling these people, look, you can't see the truth. You're blinded to it. But if you could see this peace that is coming, this peace that is before you, the manifestation of God's glory right here in your midst, if you could just see it, if you could get past your hardened heart and see it, but you're not going to, for the days will come on you when your enemies will build a barricade around you surround you and hem you in on every side and they will crush you and your children among you to the ground and they will not leave one stone on another in your midst because you did not recognize the time when God visited you. Some other phrase that says you did not recognize the day of God's salvation. Jesus is making a prophecy so whether or not he was thinking of the past, we know for certain he was fully aware of the future. And he's speaking of the events that are going to happen in 70 A.D. when Rome comes and surrounds Jerusalem and wipes it to the floor. The walls, the city, the temple. And Jesus says this is happening because you are so blind to the things of God. One of the things I see here as Jesus is approaching in this fanfare is the heart of God breaks when the hearts of men won't. The heart of God breaks when the hearts of men won't. Jesus saw this city, which God's people adored. Again, it represented God's dwelling. But Jesus saw this city and his heart broke because the hardened hearts of the people would continue to reject him as their Savior. I've had all week to sit on this passage and on this verse. And just this question God continued to weigh upon my heart is, does my heart break for the people in our city? Does my heart break for the people who are opposed to God? A lot of times I get aggravated or I feel helpless. <clears throat> but God came to me and he said, look, Mike, you're going to preach this sermon and here's the question for you. Are you weeping for your city? Are you broken for the lost in this city? Are you broken for the lost that are surround? The Bible tells us in Psalm 126.5 that those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. My confession is that my heart has not been broken the way it should be. I have not nearly shed enough tears for Stratford, for Missouri, or our nation. And as I thought on this question, I said, well, why haven't I? Why don't I have a heart like Jesus when I look to this city that is opposed to God and is blind and is lost? Why don't I have that heart like Jesus? And the answer I came to is my busyness keeps me from my brokenness. 
And this last week was crazy. It was crazy at the Hurchin House. <laughs> Jamie began Monday morning in St. Louis. Monday night, I ended it in Kansas City. She got home. We said, hi, love you. Got to go. I got back in on Wednesday afternoon, picked them up, sat down, said, okay, a couple hours, I got to preach a Bible lesson. <laughs> and that conference all week, really excellent conference, but what was on my mind was, okay, all this stuff that's still got to get done. And you throw on there things going on with school and things going on with the kids, got seminary classes and projects and tests and we put our car in the shop and they were telling us how much we would get to bless them with financially and then you know I'm not complaining then we you know we did the Friday and it's the Valentine's banquet and we have, we're running around and and the fridge is empty and the, the cabinets are empty and think, oh, I'm just not in the mood for love, you know? <laughs> but, I mean, it was, it was such a blessing. I, I laughed so hard, I, I hurt. Um, such a blessing. Feeling, I just felt like God, like Satan was trying to keep me from that blessing. But I, I came to realize that I can be so busy in life and just so consumed with life and my calendar that I don't become broken. Feel every minute and every detail that there's no time for repentance or conviction or to even hear the voice of God. And so we too can be in danger of this, that we can become so busy for the kingdom of God that we fail to be broken for the things of God. We get so busy even doing church that we fail to be the church. We can so busy doing the Christian things that we fail to actually be Christian. We can get so busy with our schedules, and I'm not telling you to be negligent. I'm not telling you to be slothful or lazy. But we can get so busy with all this stuff we feel we need to do, and no one else can do it if we don't that we fail to see the glory of God right in front of us and sometimes in those places where God wants to break us. Jesus was not distracted by the noise. He had a full week in front of him too. He was not distracted by all this celebration, but he was full understanding that he was heading into a city that was lost. A city that was opposed to God. This is who he came to die for. So we go out into the schools and go out into our community and we leave this place here in a matter of minutes. You can say amen later <laughs> to that part. God sends us out as his ambassadors, Christ appealing through us into a city, into a workplace, into a hallway, onto a sports team, onto a band or choir, sends us out to weep for the lostness that surrounds us. Paul wrote it like this in Romans chapter 9. He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. 
For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the benefit of my brothers and sisters, my own flesh and blood. Paul felt this agony. And I think sometimes we, we don't have this agony. Maybe it's just my confession. Maybe that's what God wanted me to do, Pastor Mike, confession time. Sometimes I don't have this agony in my heart because I don't fully understand the weight of my sin. I don't fully understand that if someone does not have Christ, they're going to hell. I don't fully understand or, or, or fully grab that idea that this life is it and, and the people I may meet today may not be here tomorrow. And I, am I doing everything I can to present Christ, not just do Christ or do Christian things or do the church? Am I doing everything in my, my power, in my ability to be the light and to be the salt, to be Christ to them? Where I'm at home and, and, I'm, and I'm reading the Word of God and I'm on my knees praying, and am I, am I praying for those individuals that God has put in my life that are lost? Am I weeping for them? Am I crying out to God? God, intervene in their life. Use me somehow in their life. Am I broken for the brokenness of my friends and my family members and my coworkers? That's where we need to be. But we can be just like these people. We can be just like the disciples. They were following Jesus. We can be so busy so busy that we fail to become broken. In 2 Chronicles chapter 7, as the temple was dedicated, the Lord declared this to Israel, His people, my people who bear my name, they would humble themselves. They would pray and seek my face and they would turn from their evil ways. Then, then I will hear from heaven. And then I will forgive their sin. And then I will heal their land. And my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer from this place. Legislation isn't going to save America. Only God can. And God is calling us as his people to be broken for our city, our state, and our country to be on our knees before Him. As we come to this time of invitation, here's what I'm calling on brothers and sisters in Christ, not to have this an orchestrated mess or anything like that. Is there someone in your life that you know is lost? Can you, can you think? I don't want names. We're not confessing them. Okay, is there someone that God has brought into your life that you know is lost? They don't have Jesus. This may, this may be your own child. This may be your spouse. This may be a friend at school. This may be a coworker. Some other family member. But can you think of at least one person in your life that is lost? You know they don't know Jesus. Would you be willing... Come and kneel before the Father and weep prayers of intercession for them. Are we broken for the lost? Maybe you're here this morning 
and you've been invited or someone brought you here or maybe even someone drug you to church. I don't know. But Jesus goes to Jerusalem and he goes to Jerusalem for me and he goes to Jerusalem for you. He was going there to die. His death sentence. See, all of us in this room, we all have sin in our life. The Bible says sin is what we do that falls short of God's perfection and His holiness. And no matter how good we think we are in this life, we can never match that. Never. And because we, we can't. We have sin. And that sin separates us from God. But Jesus comes into Jerusalem and He understands what He's going to do. He's going to bring peace. He's going to bring harmony away back to God through his death, and he's going to allow God just to pour out his wrath of sin upon his son. They're going to place him in a tomb. But Jesus is going to come out of, those, out of that tomb in three days to show that he has victory and power over death. He has the authority to forgive the sins of the world. And you may be here, someone brought you here, drug you here, invited you here, you just happen to show up one day. And God has brought you to this place in this moment and he is crying out to you to accept his gift of love for you. The Bible says that God's love consists of this. It's not that we love God first, but he loved us. And he gave his one and only son as a sacrifice for our sins. God doesn't ask you to have it figured out. He doesn't ask you to get your life together first. He just says, come and accept my love for you. If you've yet to do this, the Bible tells us that you are lost. But God doesn't want that for your life. He wants you to be found and saved. If you know that's you and that's something you've yet to do, the Bible says once we believe in our heart, we're to confess it with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. I'm going to be standing here. If that's you, just come on down. If you don't want to come by yourself, grab the person next to you and come on down. If someone's not sitting by you, then give someone that look and tell them to come on down with you. If you need Jesus, now's the time. Don't miss it like this crowd missed it. But maybe you're here and God has put such a burden on your heart just in the last minutes we've been together in His Word. That individual that you know is lost and you just need to come and be broken before God for that person. If that's you, I invite you to come and just kneel before the Father. Is there anything magical, magical about coming down here? No. But it is a testimony that you're going to be obedient to the Word of God. However God has spoken to you, now is the time to respond. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for saving us. Lord, I pray for the individuals here this morning that need your salvation. Lord, that you would just... Let your spirit fall upon their hearts. You are the one who draws people to you. That you would fall upon their hearts. Make it so they can't stand in that spot. That they have to get out. They have to recognize this is the day you are visiting them and calling them out of the darkness. Father, I thank you for all the great things you're doing here at Harvest Hill. I thank you for the, the celebration we had on Friday night. Just the atmosphere you provided in this place with your spirit, the joy and the love and the fellowship and the community. 
Lord, I thank you for what you're doing at Harvest Hill. I thank you for the ministries you've allowed us to do and the finances you give us to do those things. Lord, let us not become so busy doing all this stuff that we forget to be who you need us to be. Lord, break our hearts for what breaks yours. Let us be a people who are falling on our knees in this moment, seeking your face to bring revival to those individuals that we love. Father, we give all glory and praise to you for you alone are worthy of it. In this time, this place, let us not be hearers of your word only, but doers. I pray this all in the blessed name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's stand as we sing.